Welcome back to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Yochi Driesen, joined as always by Jen Williams, by Zach Beecham. It is the end of August, summer's winding down, people are thinking about how to squeeze in a little bit of vacation, so we decided to do an easy, non-controversial topic. Of course, we decided to do Israel-Palestine, because what better to ease yourself out of summer and into the fall? And there's a reason for that. And it is a clip we're about to hear from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from Monday. So translated from the Hebrew, and this was a speech he gave in a settlement in the West Bank called Barkan, he was saying, we have come back to the West Bank. We are not going to leave the West Bank. We are not going to uproot any settlements. Settlements will be here forever, was the basic message. And that would have been enormously controversial under almost any other administration. John Kerry, before he left, talked about how due to the settlement, Israel could be either Jewish or democratic, but not both. The reason Bibi felt comfortable saying this was a different clip from a different American leader. So I'm looking at two state and one state, and I like the one that both parties like. I'm very happy with the one that both parties like. I can live with either one. So two things to note there. One, the kind of creepy chuckle was... Wow, Bibi's laugh. <laughs> ...was Benjamin Netanyahu. Two, the reason he may have had that creepy laugh was Donald Trump, in that weird, weirdly phrased way, was basically breaking with decades of U.S. foreign policy, and not just Democratic foreign policy, but Republican foreign policy too, summarized as the two-state solution, which basically says... There has to be some form of Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank that leads to the creation of a Palestinian state, an independent Palestine, next to Israel. Both sides living in peace is the the hope. But that's been the case under Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush. This has been American policy for decades. And that was Donald Trump questioning it, at a minimum questioning it, if not breaking with it entirely, which is probably why Bibi felt comfortable saying settlements are forever. Right. The issue here, as per usual in this administration, is that the president doesn't know the policy, like at all. He doesn't understand why a two-state solution is so vital in terms of actually ensuring a peaceful coexistence between Israelis and Palestinians, and is approaching things through the lens of his own instincts, which are, whatever people want, I make deals, that's what I do. Setting aside the reality of that self-image that he has, which is questionable at best, he's just applying his past life lessons to a conflict or those lessons don't hold. Right. So I think it's important to break down why the idea of saying, oh, whatever they want, it's fine, is is problematic. Because on the face of it, that sounds fairly reasonable. Like, yeah, it's, it's between them. You know, it's between those two parties. So they should work it out. And whatever they want, we'll endorse. The problem is, basically, it comes down to an inequality of, of power. So the Israelis in general, are far more powerful militarily, politically, and everything. And the Palestinians have much less power. So one of the analysts um, I was kind of reading through last night, this was the argument they're making. I'm not necessarily making this argument, to be clear. Um, So that by leaving it to, you know, to them to kind of sort out, you're essentially giving it to Israel and letting them kind of work it out because, they have a lot more power to impose their will versus what the Palestinians have the power to do. And so the argument is that the U.S. Is, has always played this role in essentially trying to bring the Israelis to the table and also the Palestinians, but by kind of pushing both sides to do things that neither want to do. 
Um, which is not to say that that Israel will always impose its will or whatever. The Palestinians have definitely <laughs> imposed their will in many ways. But the point is that you need, in, in negotiations like this, you need an outside arbiter to be the one that that pushes both sides and can offer things in return, like security guarantees. So, yeah, if, you know, if Israel agrees to do this and this, then, you know, the U.S. will help make sure that you stay safe and things like that. So it's not that, like, we are just hands off in this. That won't work. I, I think there's also— Beyond the power imbalance, there's the question of political unity. I mean, Israel is the only democratic state in the Middle East. It is also a, a hey, country— don't forget Tunisia. Yeah. Tunisia! Shout out to Tunisia. Um, it is a country that has shifted markedly to the right. It's a country that, before the most recent election, there were pollsters who were as accurate as pollsters were in the United States, who were predicting that there would be basically a dead tie between Benjamin Netanyahu leading the Likud party, which is right-wing, and Isaac Herzog leading what had been left of the Labor Party, which was left-wing— they were woefully wrong. Netanyahu won more seats than expected. Isaac Herzog won fewer. The right wing in general won a lot more seats than people had thought. The ultimate result was Israel has 120 seats in the parliament. If you get 61, you become prime minister. Netanyahu and the right wing coalition got 67. The left wing coalition got basically got 53. So it's a relatively stable government, which is free to pursue policies, which in the case of Netanyahu are right wing in some cases, not as right-wing as some of his partners, which we'll get to a little bit later. Right. The Palestinians are divided in the most literal sense possible. Palestine, if it comes to exist, will include the West Bank. Right now, that's controlled by the Palestinian Authority, controlled by Mahmoud Abbas, who has visited the White House. He's someone that the U.S. has dealt with, that the U.S. and, frankly, Israel, for the most part, sees a moderate, and whose government receives huge amounts of aid from the U.S. and from other parts of the world. The Gaza Strip, which we can talk about a little bit later as well, is run by Hamas. So it is run by a terror organization that gets no money whatsoever from Israel, no money from the United States, no money from Europe, no foreign aid from many other countries. And you've got that split. So theoretically, even if there were talks, Mahmoud Abbas could come to the table and say, we can make a deal. Hamas would say, no, we can't. And so if you're Israel, you can kind of understand a little bit that that lack of unity is also a problem. You know, Jen, I agree there's the power imbalance, but if one side can negotiate and say, we represent a sovereign government and we say X, and the other side can say, we're half of a government whose other half is militantly opposed, it begins to fall apart. And that's certainly the Israeli line, but it's very difficult to believe that this government has any serious interest in negotiations with Palestinians and creating a Palestinian state if they had a choice uh, as compared to previous Israeli governments. Netanyahu built his career uh, in Israeli politics in part by, in large part, by opposing negotiations with and concessions to the Palestinians and on a kind of Israeli maximalism. He is no longer the leader of the furthest right party in Israel on security issues. Um, that, in my estimation, would be Naftali Bennett's Jewish home party uh, in terms of the major parties inside the country. Uh, but he depends on being able to pull right-wing support from Bennett and others. That, that's his main competition. He's more worried about them than he is the left, which means he's more likely to lean into his own personal inclinations, which are essentially to maximize settlement expansion as much as possible and to not seriously engage with something that could create a Palestinian state. Right. Like, there are very specific kind of things that that have been asked from, like, the broader, like, Arab coalition or from the Palestinians. You know, freeze on settlements um, is basically, like, the biggest one. Um, and then, you know, agreeing on principle to negotiate a, a future Palestinian state based roughly on the 1967 line. So that's the boundaries, the borders that existed before the 1967 or Six-Day War, um, or Israel 
was victorious and seized a bunch of territory, including Gaza and the West Bank, um, among other things. Um, so, but the problem is that, like, even those, which are, you know, baseline items that have been on the negotiating table for for decades, that's, like, the thing that, that people want. Um, but the thing is that, like, even those kind of modest concessions, it's highly unlikely because of that political division in Israel that that Bibi, which we keep saying Bibi, by the way, that's Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, nickname, so just so we're clear. We're not talking about like a third random person here. Um, but it's B-I-B-I, not B period B. Period. R- right, yes. just Or not Bebe, like Bebe's kids. It's highly unlikely because of that political division that that Bibi would be able to make even those modest concessions in any kind of agreement to get back to the negotiating table. Because Neftali Bennett, like Zach said, is, you know, for the, for the Jewish Home Party. And those kinds of things, like freezing settlements, are are anathema to him. And he has the seats in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament, to bring down the government and call new elections. And, and Bibi knows that. And so if he doesn't want to lose that coalition support and potentially have his government fall and face new elections, then he has to make sure that he keeps them happy. So even if he wanted to, which again, I agree with you, Zach, I don't think that he does, but even if he wanted to make those concessions and sit down and try to like hash out an actual peace deal, the likelihood that he would be able to do that politically without, you know, shooting himself in the foot are really slim. So right before the Obama administration left office, and there was conventional wisdom that Obama and Netanyahu hated each other on a personal level, which is true. Definitely. I mean, that's been clear from public statements explicit statements from both leaders and their aides. But John Kerry, right before he left office, the former Secretary of State, gave this kind of extraordinary speech. And in it, it was this long litany, basically a summation of the Obama administration's view of the Israeli government and of the problems with the current lack of talks. No U.S. Secretary of State had ever given this kind of speech that was this blunt, frankly, this harsh. And there were two quotes from it that really really resonate that I just want to read very briefly. One, he spoke to Netanyahu and said his government was, quote, the most right-wing in Israeli history. He also said, in speaking of the settlers and the settlements, that, this is again a quote, the settler agenda is defining the future of Israel, which are both really weighty comments. And on the first one, factually, there's no question that's true. And what's interesting about the right-wing nature of this government is that, Zach, I agree, you've got other parties that are very right-wing, but you have other members of Netanyahu's own party who are also more right-wing yeah. right. than Netanyahu. And it, it, there's one specific area where that comes to the forefront, and it's a little bit of a scary one, which is annexation. So for a long time, the, the debate had been, how much do you withdraw from? Not how much do you keep? And certainly not how much do you annex? Because if you annex, then you have a very difficult choice. Either every Palestinian living in the areas you annex becomes a citizen of Israel, in which case you get closer to a point at which Jews in Israel are no longer the majority, or they do not get rights, in which case you get a state permanently in which one class of citizen is permanently given fewer rights than, than the other. And I want to just mention very briefly a couple of statistics because they're interesting. So, you know, Zach, you mentioned of Tali Bennett. This is uh, an American-born politician. Uh, he made his money in tech. He now runs a very powerful right-wing party. So he wants to annex 60%. And that sounds like a lot. Of but the West Bank? Of the West Bank. Right. Area C, right. Then you have two members of Netanyahu's party, his own party, Danny Danone, who's currently the Israeli ambassador to the UN, and again, a member of the, of the Likud, of Netanyahu's party, and he wants to annex every West Bank settlement, every single one. Then you've got Uri Ariel, who's a member of Bennett's party, who wants to take the entire West Bank, every inch of it. But then you have another member of Netanyahu's party, Tsipi Otevli, who's a woman, she's seen as a, a possible future prime minister, again, wants all of the West Bank. So 
the shift there is remarkable. You go from decades where the question was, how much do you withdraw from, to a question of how much do you annex? And annexation is really, really problematic. You also have Ad Victor Lieberman, who I can't even remember where what his position in this government is, but previously was the defense minister. Uh, his foreign minister. Foreign minister now, okay. Um, he, he kind of moves around, but uh, he, you know, not just annexation of the West Bank, but he's also called for a full reoccupation of Gaza, which I don't think anyone thinks is a good idea on any side in Israeli or Palestinian politics. But that's what he wants. And, and we can talk about the Gaza withdrawal. I, I think it's Im- important to take a step back and to understand where the attitudes that Yochi is describing came from. Because as he said, this is not how Israeli politics worked for a very long time. And the key shift came around the year, or began, I should say, around the year 2000, uh, which is when the peace process of the 90s failed. And we, for reasons that are very complicated, but resulted in the Second Intifada, a war between Israelis and Palestinians uh, that was devastating and caused a tremendous number of especially civilian casualties on the Israeli side and more Palestinians were killed. Then uh, a right-wing prime minister, actually, Ariel Sharon, withdrew from Gaza, which we've been talking about, another Palestinian territory. The result of that was occupation by Hamas, a Palestinian faction that's far more militant than Fatah and and religiously. It's an Islamist group and a violent Islamist group, which they then, after the Israeli withdrawal, including pulling back settlements, killed a lot of Israelis, firing rockets, etc. Those two shocks, the second intifada and the result of the Gaza withdrawal, pushed Israeli public opinion very far to the right. There's very good political science evidence, actually, that Terrorist attacks before elections in Israel led to increases in votes for the right-wing bloc or for various different right-wing parties. And what that evidence tells us is that Israelis have come to believe that negotiating with Palestinians is fruitless and is likely to lead to violence. The irony of the situation is that is less true than ever, in part because the Palestinian leadership has shifted towards being more open to peace recently. But with the Israeli government moving to the right, peace is looking more out of hand than it has in a very long time. I think there's one other point that's worth mentioning in terms of why violence has fallen and why, if you visit Israel, why the Palestinian issue is no longer seen as paramount. The Iranian issue is. Um, I was in Israel during the height of the Second Intifada, and Jerusalem was empty. There had been a string of bus bombings in particular in which dozens of Israeli civilians were killed. And the downtown of Jerusalem, the main kind of mercantile area, was literally deserted. All you saw were snipers on the rooftops. That was it. No tourists, no shoppers. It was a ghost town. What Israel has done since, and people like to say it's conventional wisdom, which is so often wrong about so many things, that there's no military solution to terrorism. It turns out that they're often, if not a solution, gets closer to a solution. Israel did two things. One, it built a wall, a giant wall between most of Israel and the West Bank, and it launched a enormously wide-ranging campaign against the leadership of Hamas of killing them with drones, assassinating them with undercover units. But it went after the individual leadership, and it built a wall. And what that's led to is basically a complete lack of terror attacks within Israel. So you've had attacks of late where Israeli Arabs in particular have taken cars and driven them into crowds, and it's killed one or two people at a time. What you have not had are buses being blown up every couple of days. And the wall has worked, and the assassination campaign against Hamas has worked. Set aside whatever we think of the politics and the morality of it, but from the point of view of Israelis— You can shift to the right, one, because, Zach, as you were saying, you've come to believe that peace talks don't lead anywhere. And two, you can ignore it because the wall keeps attacks away and keeps Palestinians away. 
And so it's not a part of your daily life or what so, you see every day. So yeah, so there's like a twofold effect here. There's one, the spike in violence drove people to the right. And second, the decline in violence subsequently made the peace process feel less urgent. It made people not as concerned about doing something about the Palestinian problem and solving it. And uh, I was last in Israel about three years ago. I was in Israel and, and the Palestinian territories. And in Israel, in Tel Aviv especially, which is the hub of Israeli liberalism, you don't, you have no sense that the occupation is a problem. It just, it's invisible. It doesn't affect your life. It doesn't seem like a present problem. We have this perception in the West that Israel is dominated by the Palestinian issue, but that is just not what it's like if you're living there on the Israeli side of the Green Line. This may not surprise many people who listen to or read Vox stuff, but this is a pretty casual place where many of our colleagues are in shorts, t-shirts, and flip-flops. That said, it is nice sometimes to really dress up. It's nice if you're going to a party, if you're going out with someone that you care about. And that works if you've got a suit that fits. A great way to get a suit that fits that isn't just something you buy off the rack is to go to one of our sponsors, Indochino, because they make it really easy to get a perfectly tailored suit at an incredible price. You can choose from hundreds of fabrics. You can personalize it the way you want it, whether it's for work, a wedding, a party, some other kind of special occasion. They have suited up hundreds of thousands of men and are now the largest made-to-measure menswear brand in the world. So here's how it works. Either go to a showroom or you can go online at Indochino.com. You can pick the fabric. You can choose the customizations from thin lapel to wide lapel, pleats, flat front, jacket linings, buttons. Submit your measurements and then you place the order. It comes to you in just a few weeks. This week, my listeners could get any premium Indochino suit for just $3.79 if you go to Indochino.com and you enter Worldly at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Shipping is free. That is Indochino.com, promo code Worldly, for any premium suit, which you get for $3.79 with free shipping. It is an incredible deal for a suit that will fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. It's a nice time for when you decide to change from t-shirt and jeans to something that looks a little bit fancier and more professional. Again, Indochino.com, promo code Worldly. I think it's important to um, to also talk about kind of the the dynamics that happened in the Palestinian side um, as a result of the second intifada and and then later through the Gaza withdrawal. So you'll hear absolutely right that Israel essentially decimated Hamas. Um, you know, by the end of the second intifada, Hamas leadership was was broken militarily. They were they were totally on the ropes. Um, but what's weird is that you would think that that would mean that Hamas would go away, but they actually became more powerful and ended up winning elections and taking full control of Gaza, which is really interesting, right? Like what happened there? And I think part of it is, you know, that Hamas is really good at spinning a narrative that even though they've lost, they still won. Um, so, you know, the idea behind withdrawing from Gaza, so so Israel controlled Gaza for, for decades. And in Gaza, you had eight, 1,500 Jewish settlers, and they were all being protected essentially by 3,000 IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, um, soldiers. And then you had them living among 1.4 million Palestinians. And, and Gaza's tiny, right? Like, we're talking about a tiny, teeny, tiny little strip of land. Um, so the reasoning on the Israeli side behind the Gaza withdrawal was our soldiers are out here getting killed, you know, being targeted, Right. And we don't want this burden anymore. We're going to pull back. It was the idea of Ariel Sharon's, former prime minister, 
And then it was basically like, you know, we can, you know, smooth over friction between Israelis and Palestinians. We'll pull back. We'll let the Palestinian Authority just run things in Gaza. We'll still control the borders and air, sea, and land. But we'll let you guys kind of handle it. We'll pull back. Well, when that happened, it also kind of coincided with the end of the Second Intifada, roughly. And so Hamas used that to argue, look, our resistance is what pushed the Israelis out of Gaza. Like, we won. You know, we may be decimated militarily. And then, you know, at the same time, on the other side of the Palestinian Authority side, you had Yasser Arafat's death and you had the rise of Mahmoud Abbas, way less charismatic. So it was like kind of a rocky political time for the for Hamas's kind of political opponents, for their rivals. So you essentially had Hamas kind of seizing the day and being able to spin their massive defeat into this kind of narrative of, you know, we are the true resistance. We are the ones who, you know, are really fighting back against the Israelis. And so they ended up becoming ascendant, which I think goes to kind of a broader point about how Israel deals with Hamas, because Hamas is absolutely a terrorist group, but they are also a political organization. And the the problem is that they actually have to, the Israelis have to actually engage with Hamas as a legitimate political party, whether they want to or not, that's who they are. So Israel has had a bit of a a hard time kind of figuring out how to manage that like hybrid organization. Uh, A good friend of mine is actually um, doing her her dissertation um, at King's College on on how Israel has dealt with hybrid organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah. And and the thing is that, like, militarily decimating them alone doesn't only work because they did that and Hamas was still ascended. So it's really, really problematic on that side. And what you've had, I agree completely on, on the difficulty of trying to figure out what to do with them, is Israel, much as it might like to, cannot cut ties with Hamas, in part because— the Gaza Strip, its electricity comes from Israel, its water, and, and it's much of its sewage is provided by Israel or handled by Israel. And as much as Israel might like to say, hey, Hamas, it's all yours. Go do what you want to do. They can't because Gaza is already miserable. Gaza is already has some of the highest unemployment rates in the world. It's the densest population strip in the world. And if it had no electricity and no water, it becomes even more of a hellhole. The sad irony with Gaza, I spent a fair bit of time there. Nobody wants it. No one. It had been under Egyptian control. Egypt didn't want it. It was under Jordanian control. Jordan doesn't want it. Israel doesn't want it because it is poverty-stricken. It's densely populated. It has mass unemployment. It has poor education. So it's just a place that nobody wants, including parts of the Palestinian Authority. I was in Gaza a couple of years ago. And what's interesting about being there is you have construction projects that started, luxury hotels along the beach. Gaza, for people who, who may not have been there, who may not know the geography as well sometimes as we all forget it too, Gaza shares the same kind of beaches as Tel Aviv does. And what's really jarring is you're in Tel Aviv and the beach is bustling and it's like this really wealthy city. You don't go very far and suddenly that same beach is Gaza and it's choked with trash. Nobody uses it. And when you're there, you see kind of half-built hotels that were never finished, in part because they were then destroyed by Israeli strikes. You see signs everywhere, posters everywhere for Hamas fighters who were killed by Israel. And so it's physically very close to Israel, but might as well be on the moon. It, It could not be more different. And I bring that up because it's important also for people as we talk about settlements to visualize what a settlement is. Because it's easy to think, aha, these are just a bunch of like bearded guys with machine guns living on hills. And that's not for the most part what the settlements are. You have a lot of them do live on hills. A lot of the settlements themselves are on hills, but the vast, vast, vast bulk of settlers, the population, are not those people. They're living in what are functionally cities that look like any city in Israel that have universities, museums, schools, hospitals, paved roads. And if you were in some of these, including Efrat, which is very close to Jerusalem, Ariel, which is deeper in the West Bank, you would not know you were in any kind of occupied territory. You would think you were just in sort of the main territory of Israel. And that's where it gets so tricky 
Because if you're talking about withdrawing 25 people from a hilltop, that's hard because those people may be violent, but it's 25 people. If you're talking about taking 25,000 people out of a fully built-up city like Ariel, that's really hard to even imagine, let alone to picture it happening. That also speaks to the the degree to which settlements are a problem for the peace process. And that's true on two levels. Right. Right? Like, the first one is imagine a massive city, right? Like, maybe not a massive city, but certainly a, a large-sized city. And it's isolated in the middle of territory that's supposed to belong to other people and surrounded by settlements from people who are potentially hostile and potentially a security threat. Well, what do you do to protect that city if you're the Israeli government? Well, you have to build roads that are limited access. You have to patrol them. You have to check Palestinians who might want to travel through or near it. And the result is that every settlement that goes up creates more barriers and more difficulty for Palestinians who are trying to live a regular life and creates more resentment for Israelis because the security needs of the settlers, by necessity, make Palestinians' lives worse, make economic development harder, and make Israel look terrible. And uh, also carve out chunks of territory that you're essentially building massive cities that can't be undone, right? Like, it's a fait accompli. Like, you can't evacuate these massive cities. Like Yochi said, you can pull back 25 people. But we're talking about, you know, building—if we're talking about building a future Palestinian state, it's not only—and Zach, you're, you're totally right—it's not only just kind of the, the difficulties that it creates for, you know, Palestinians who are trying to travel through and, you know, have jobs and get to hospitals and and things like that. It's also for, like, the, the longer-term future. That right. That was the second point I wanted yeah. to get to. But I don't quite agree that you can't evacuate them. You can. It's just that it's harder. The difficulty here isn't technical feasibility. It's political constraints. Right. It's that when the more Israelis live in the settlements and the more that move there and the more that establish lives there and schools there and sentimental attachments, the stronger the opposition is to leaving. And the more people across the Green Line, that is to say in Maine, in actual Israel, who have ties to people in the settlement, whose family live there, the more they're going to hate the idea of their family being forcibly uprooted and moved back into Israel, even if it's necessary to prevent true and immense suffering for Palestinians, which it is, incidentally, right? The, the human stakes here are high, and the longer the Israeli government allows settlements to expand, the harder it will be to muster political support, especially since growing settlements means growing support for right-wing parties, which means the people who want to make peace in the first place are less likely to be in control of government. Also, it's worth pointing out how big the numbers are. So we're talking about roughly half a million Israelis who live in the West Bank. If you added the number of Israelis who live in East Jerusalem, which is considered as well by many people as occupied and the same with the West Bank is, that adds another 100 or 200,000 people. These are huge numbers of people. I mean, Israel as a whole population is about 7 million. So if you imagine that 500,000 of those 7 million live in the West Bank, the idea of taking out that many people or any big chunk of those people, it gets, again, it, it takes it to a realm of, of impossibility. And it is also worth noting, and Zach, I'm glad you brought this up, Israelis have not just the security dynamics of having the Israeli army protect their their homes and, and their towns, but the roads are really fascinating. I mean, I've been on them for quite some time, and these are modern highways, really beautiful highways. Donald Trump would say, you know, beautiful, 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 bigly. Palestinians can't use them. These are Israeli hospitals inside some of these settlements. They're the, the top tier. You know, these are as good as American hospitals. Palestinians can't go into them. And we hate to use the word apartheid. There is no more explosive word about Israel than that one. I'm bracing myself for the amount of emails that are going to come in taking offense at it. It's not something, frankly, what I believe in. It's not what I think is the situation. But if you annex the West Bank, and if you do not give Palestinian citizenship 
then that word becomes a lot more accurate. Then you have one group of people permanently, forever, having fewer rights than another group. And then it becomes, I'm not sure what other word you can use. Now, I mean, even Ehud Barak, like the former prime minister of Israel, warned of a, the future apartheid state. Like that that could, you know, if if there is no peace process, if we don't stop settlements, if we can't figure this out, we will end up as an apartheid state. And that is a massively immoral place to be for Israelis. Yeah, it's, it's ironic that uh, that word is not to be used in American political political discourse or it gets a lot of backlash. But in Israel, that's a common warning that you hear from the left, that that's the likely future. A couple of months back, I interviewed a guy named Gilad Sher, who had been the national security advisor to Netanyahu. There's parenthetically an interesting dynamic where the people who work for him the closest come to hate him the most. <laughs> it's kind of like it is Trumpian in that way. <laughs> and he said something to me that I found very powerful, which was Zionism was not created to permanently rule in other people. And his argument is that Israel should begin to define the contours of what it wants in the future, not because of the belief that you could have peace with the Palestinians, but purely out of Israeli self-interest. And the Gaza withdrawal was catastrophic in a lot of ways, one of which was Israel wasn't prepared to bring the settlers back into Israel and figure out where to go. So here we are more than a decade later, a decade and a half later, many of them still live in trailers. That's messed up. And if you're trying to persuade the Israeli public, hey, we can bring West Bank settlers in and give them a good life, that's not a particularly good set of evidence. So Gilad Sher's argument is, and he, he would identify himself as probably center-right, is Israel needs to begin building the infrastructure for withdrawal. Pass laws saying, if you will leave, we will pay you X amount of money. Figure out where in Israel towns can be rebuilt. And do that not for the Palestinians, but for Israelis themselves. Gilad Sher is not the mainstream of Israeli politics. Right. That view is not where voters are going. Right. I think I think it's important to, to point out that, you know, you would do that, you would build that infrastructure if you were serious about pulling back Israeli settlements and and trying to, you know, either for the reason of trying to establish peace with the Palestinians or just for Israelis, you know, Israel's own self-interest. But when we're talking about the, the far right, like Naftali Bennett, there's no argument that we want to pull back these settlements. This is our land, right? This is Judea and Samaria. Like, this is, this is Israel. This is ours by right. And these settlements are are completely legal and moral, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? So the idea of pulling back these settlements is, you know, absolutely critical to a future peace process. But I think that goes back to the Israeli kind of political right problem, that there's a huge, you know, coalition on the right that doesn't see pulling back settlements not only as, like, not feasible, but is not something that they should ever do. And, you know, Jen, you, you talked a little bit before, and, and maybe you could dig into this a little bit more deeply, uh, the Palestinian state of mind, kind of the Palestinian state of play politically, but also Palestinian public opinion and, and where it is toward, towards Israel. And I wonder if you could talk to that a bit more deeply, because I think, obviously, it's important to recognize that Israel, as you said at the outset, may have more political power, more military power, but the Palestinians, of course, are not, obviously, are not irrelevant. And where is where are they? Where is their society on this? Right. I think it's interesting. We have been talking about this, especially with the Trump administration. Like, until very recently, it's mostly been a conversation about Trump and Netanyahu, and the Palestinians have been largely absent. Um, that's kind of changed recently. So uh, last week, uh, Jared Kushner, president's special advisor, um, as well as a, a delegation um, of the special envoy to Israel-Palestine, the U.S. ambassador to Israel and, and a group of people all went— to, they went on this kind of whirlwind tour um, through the Middle East. They went to Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Jordan, Egypt, 
Um, and then they also went to Ramallah. They went to the West Bank and they met with Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority. And they sat down with him. And it was kind of interesting um, to hear. And I actually have a quote, what he said right before that. Like, uh, so they went last week, um, last Thursday. But right before that, Abbas uh, made a statement to um, some uh, an Israeli uh, Knesset delegation uh, who was meeting with him, and, and they reported this. So he said, I have met with Trump envoys about 20 times since the beginning of his term as president of the United States. Every time, they repeatedly stressed to me how much they believe and are committed to a two-state solution and a halt to construction and the settlements. I have pleaded with them to say the same thing to Netanyahu, but they refrained. They said they would consider it, but then they didn't get back to me. So it was basically like, yeah, yeah, no, we totally believe in that, right? But, you know, Abbas is like, well, can, can you tell Netanyahu because he's still building settlements? And then publicly, the, the Trump administration refuses to do that. So, you know, when Kushner um, met with Abbas, it was kind of expected that it was going to go, like, really badly. Like, it was, you know, they're not going to listen to each other. But it actually kind of came out where Abbas was like, I still think we have faith in the two-state solution. I don't know why. Um, I don't know what was said there. But I think it's really important to point out, too, that, that the Trump administration does have a strategy. They do have a plan. They have an approach that they're trying to do. And the problem is, again, like we talked about, there are ways that you could go forward with the peace process. The problem is political will. So the, the Trump administration is essentially pursuing this, this outside-in approach, um, which is basically trying to, to kind of muster the outside relations that Israel has with other Arab countries and has developed. So that's why Kushner went to Saudi. It's why he went to UAE. Um, and essentially to try to get those kind of countries to pull Hamas away from like the kind of extremist side of things and try to get more moderate people inside Hamas to form a government with Palestinian authority, right? So the, the main key problem is that one of the main problems is that, like you said, we have a divided kind of government. So Mahmoud Abbas is wildly, wildly unpopular in the West Bank and in Gaza, even though he doesn't control Gaza. Um, and, you know, he's the one who's essentially supposed to be negotiating, right? He's the one that we're supposed to be talking to. And most Palestinians really don't like the guy. He's authoritarian. He's corrupt. Um, he's they, extremely old and has been in power for a old. very long right. time. And they also, a lot of them see him as essentially a collaborator in the horrible sense of the term, right? Collaborating with the enemy, right? Because Mahmoud Abbas and Palestinian Authority has a security arrangement with Israel where they kind of work together to kind of police and, and secure the West Bank. And a lot of people see that as, you know, collaborating with the occupation. And Hamas uses that, right? They play that up to kind of keep them divided and to keep themselves in power, um, so to get around this, uh, well, one of the ways that, that Mahmoud Abbas has managed to stay in power is that he essentially, they give money to the families of what they consider martyrs who have fought um, against Israel in their struggle for independence, but what a lot of people, including Israel and myself, would also consider terrorists, right? So they pay hundreds of dollars to the families of of terrorists who have been either arrested or killed. And, and they advertise, like there are posters around saying that. They provide money for the canteen, right? Like in prison, they provide money so you can like buy snacks and stuff, like two prisoners who have killed Israelis, who have, you know, thrown rocks at Israelis, they're Israeli soldiers. And, and not just soldiers too, people who have killed right. children and non-combatants. Right, yeah. right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and the thing is that, like, 
yeah, that's really horrible. And so we want, um, you know, in Congress, we talked about this earlier before we we started recording, you know, in Congress, um, in the U.S. Congress, we've had um, Lindsey Graham's been pushing this uh, this bill called the Taylor Force Act, um, and it's named for for a man named Taylor Force, who was a U.S. Army vet, who you know wasn't even Israeli. Not that that makes a difference. Shouldn't also kill Israelis either. Um, but he was killed by a Palestinian terrorist in a knife attack in Tel Aviv last year, and so. The idea that we would be, you know, the U.S. taxpayer is giving money because we give millions of dollars to the Palestinian Authority, that part of that money is going to the families of someone who killed, like, that's unconscionable, and rightfully so. It, it's it's horrible, but there's, there's a reason why there is that policy. There's a reason why Abbas does that, and it keeps him in power. It provides, you know, a legitimate way of showing that, like, I am helping stand up for, you know, stand up against the occupiers, and I am helping, you know, promote the resistance and, and our liberation struggle. And and that's the problem, is that, you know, if we want, like, U.S. wants to pull back those those payments, that's essentially the only thing that's keeping a boss afloat in his government. And if he falls, then there's essentially no government in the West Bank. And like I said before, Abbas has a security arrangement with the Israelis, and they, you know, police and secure the West Bank together, which means it would essentially be be lawless, right? It would just be back to the Israelis to completely kind of do everything in the West Bank. And that's what Israelis are are terrified of. So they want to keep Abbas in power, but he's weak. Hamas wants Abbas out, but Israel doesn't want to deal with Hamas. So that's why it's kind of a clusterfuck, for, for lack of a better word. It's really, really complicated. It's not that we don't have a peace plan, right? It's not that we don't know what the terms of a deal would be. Everyone has written that we, we have a million plans that are, you know, down to, you know, thin pencil lines dividing borders. It, it has nothing to do with we can't figure out how to share land. It's that the political will and the political structures are not there. It's that nobody will do the things that need to be done. Right. I mean, there's a lot in what you just said. Um, and, and one glimmer of hope as a counterpoint is that recent polling found that both Israelis and Palestinians overwhelmingly oppose the idea of a one-state solution, of not separating uh, but on the, the, yeah, on, on the flip side, though, only a very, very narrow majority believe in a two-state solution. Right. So it's not— <laughs> Right. And it's, it's not going, great, but, and it's going down. Right. But at least there's still a majority in favor of a two-state <laughs> solution. The, the point I'm trying to get to is there's a general sense that there is a right solution to the problem, as Jen just illustrated. And on the Israeli side, there's divisions over whether that right solution is desirable or some other nebulous solution is a good idea. When you ask right-wing Israeli prime ministers about the apartheid problem, they kind of shut down. It's like talking to a robot that's malfunctioning. They don't have a good answer there. But on the Palestinian side, I think one of the things that Jen just highlighted that's really important is this sense of occupation and resistance, right? It, from their point of view, and and this is really important to understand from the Palestinian point of view, Israel has been controlling every aspect of their lives, making it impossible for them to form an effective society, uh, killing them for decades. Imprisoning. Also. Yeah. And this is has generated a powerful sense of resentment and a sense that compromise and cooperation with Israel is working with the enemy. And that makes negotiating itself difficult to begin with. It makes concessions even harder. And Palestinians have this attitude at the same time that they believe that they'd like their own state. And that can only come through negotiations with Israel. So there's this internal tension in the mainstream Palestinian worldview between we'd like a state and the idea that they can't work with Israel 
for very justified reasons. It's it's, but at the same time, that justified anger not only translates into unjustifiable acts, that is to say, the killing of civilians, but also frustrates peace negotiations. Some years ago, I was living in Israel, and uh, an author named Gershom Gorenberg, who's a brilliant, brilliant man, made a point that stuck with me for, I'm the old person here with a literal gray beard, so for many years now. And he was making the argument that there was a window to make a peace deal, and that window was when this was a political dispute. But when it became a religious dispute, there was no chance. And he was talking about this in the 90s when Yasser Arafat, who was a secular leader, was negotiating with Israeli leaders, leaders who were also secular. That window was closed. And what you have now is on the Palestinian side, Hamas, which is a, a religious authority, a religious movement that believes it is entitled because God gave it to them. It is entitled to the West Bank and Gaza and Jerusalem. You have in Israel, settler parties, all of which are religious in nature, who believe, as Jen was saying before, that God gave it to them. And the Gorenberg quote has always stuck with me because we are now at a point where Yes, there are maps in which the Jerusalem is divided in some way, or some settlements are annexed, some are given back to the Palestinians and evacuated, but those are all political ideas. Those are political mapping ideas. And to the Gorbrink point, it's now religious on religious. Now it's Jews saying, this is ours because God gave it to us, and Palestinians saying, this is ours because God gave it to us as Muslims. And that's really hard to bridge because then it's no longer a question of, let's get a deal and sign it and put it through parliament and get a referendum. Then it's, how do you persuade people who have deeply held religious beliefs to give up those beliefs. And I, and I think that, more than anything else, to my mind, is why it's so hard to envision a deal. And that's, I think, the grimmest part of all of this, is like the rational contours of a deal, you know, Jen, as you were saying, have been known for decades. But I have a two-year-old and I have a one-year-old. I do not believe that in my lifetime or in theirs, there will be a peace deal. And that's heartbreaking because the cost is so high and the solution seems so obvious. Yeah, I, I want to emphasize the costs here. There are one of two scenarios. One is the one that we've been discussing, which is that Israel takes control and either pushes out the Palestinians or treats them as second-class citizens forever. That's apartheid. And it's a human rights disaster. The second scenario is a one-state solution in which the Israeli government as it exists is dissolved and there's some kind of national vote. That is a recipe for civil conflict because Israeli Jews, with real justification, don't trust Palestinian Arabs to rule over them. They think that they would use a state as a tool of oppression. And I think that there would be, in the event of a merging between the West Bank and mainline Israel, be serious civil violence, conflict that we haven't seen in decades between the two sides. And I think those are the only two feasible options, the end of a Jewish state and violence or apartheid. I think there is also the third depressing option, which is the status quo continues indefinitely. You have Palestinians kind of seething with rage because they're not getting self-determination, Israel not annexing the territory fully, but settlements growing in the parts they control. And, and that is not long-term feasible. Like at some point, that explodes. Yep. You can push it back. Maybe it's a decade. Maybe it's five years. Maybe it's 20 years. But at some point, that explodes. And I, and I think that's also the equally scary third option. I, I want to explain um, just a little bit behind... Uh, the the kind of to get back to the the idea of of what's kind of motivating some of the violence on the Palestinian side, um, just to be clear from the outset, in no context, in there's no justification whatsoever for terrorist violence violence against civilians. Full stop. Um, the justification or or the reason why a lot of Palestinians in especially in Gaza feel like they are limited to just violence, that that's the only option they have left. Like, part of it is also, like like Zach said, that, you know, we don't want to cooperate because that's collaborating with the enemy. But it's also because the other options have 
failed spectacularly. So the Palestinian Authority, the ability to come to a political solution because they have been so inept and made such also terrible decisions, have failed miserably. And Hamas had said, see, there is no political solution. We have to fight. That's the only way that Israelis will understand, you know, is is militarily. We have to push back. And then they will finally realize that they need to come to the table. Um, But even when, you know, Mahmoud Abbas decided to basically try to go to the international community and work around, basically work around Israel and just say, okay, we're going to go to the UN. We're going to go to all these countries. We're going to say, hey, can you support us as a country? Can we get recognition? We're going to essentially go around you guys. And the UN blocked it basically because Israel and the US, you know, Israel and the US typically always vote together uh, and the US has veto power. So it's not to say that the violence is justified, but one can understand when people are saying over and over, you guys need to come up with a better idea. You need you need to stop violence. Violence is not the answer. You can't do this. And they're like, well, what other option do we have left? We tried the international community. That didn't work. We tried political solutions. That didn't work. So this is the only thing left. And that may not be true. It may just, I actually believe that there is a political solution if you had leadership who were willing to take serious risks and do the things that need to be done and and stop just being cowards and, and cowing to, you know, political interests. But Hamas is really good at, at spinning that narrative that, that violence is the only way out of this. And that is really scary because you have entire generations being born into the idea that violence is the only way forward. And they have reasons to look around and go, well, that maybe it is. So I'm going to wager that there can be a lot of listeners who have very strong opinions on this. When you have them, whether they're hot takey, lukewarm takey, cold takey, worldlyadvox.com, send us. We will respond. We promise. And we expect that they will start to come. We will now shift to elsewhere with the easiest transition of all time. Zach right now is rocking back and forth with joy for a reason that will become clear momentarily. I will say, because he may be too modest to say this, Zach wrote a piece this week, which he will talk about on ranking leaders using political science. I mean this sincerely, not just because he's a friend. It is the best thing I've read on the site in many, many weeks. Elsewhere, Westeros. Zach, floor is yours. I always smile when the Game of Thrones theme comes on. One, because it means we're no longer talking about something super depressing. Two, because it's so much fun. Uh, And so what I did in this piece is I took a bunch of different findings and theories from political science and applied them to this season of Game of Thrones to try to figure out, as Yochi suggested, which of the leaders pursued the best strategy in the quest for the Iron Throne. And just to step in, for, if, if there's anybody out there listening to this who are, are not Game of Thrones fans, there's a bunch of really interesting political science and IR theory stuff. Okay, maybe that doesn't sound so sexy now that I hear it out loud. <laughs> but there's a lot of really interesting stuff. So you'll still be able to follow along, probably, if you're not a big fan. So stay tuned. I promise it'll be fun. So uh, my ranking for worst in the piece, uh, which is the one I felt most strongly about, is uh, everyone's favorite dragon queen, Daenerys Targaryen, who started out the season in this prime position where she had the strongest army. She had a fairly attractive military cause, which is essentially ending oppressive rule in Westeros. She had a number of powerful allies and dragons, which are the dominant military technology in Westeros, right? And then she screwed it all up 
Not only did she get two of her allies killed and the third one captured, many of their militaries neutralized, but she lost a dragon to the Night King, gave him control of it, which is essentially like handing over a nuclear weapon to a terrorist group, right, in real-world analogies. Right. And, like, the, the argument that I make, and I think is true, is that the best way to understand this is through the lens of what uh, IR scholars call revisionist uh, powers. A revisionist power is one that wants to overturn the political status quo, the international system, the way that it works, and install a new order that's beneficial to them. Modern Russia is a good example of this, as was uh, Napoleon's France is another good one. And these countries often, according to research uh, done by Yale University's Jason Leal, adopt strategies that are that are quite risky. And they do so because they develop support for their own policies from their own people and others based on uh, grandiose promises of a better world and a new order. And their strategies fit those promises rather than fitting any kind of smart, thoughtful approach to international politics. And Daenerys did that this season, right? She didn't think carefully or subtly about how to deploy dragons. She just developed a message, a political message, basically, I will not be the evil queen or I need to get Jon Snow's support, and deployed military force according to that political messaging rather than intelligent strategic imperatives. I think it's important to kind of explain that this kind of is all operating within a framework of, of realism, right? I think we can all agree that that Westeros is essentially operates on a realist. No, I don't I, I don't I don't agree with that at all, to be clear. And that's okay. another thing I say in the piece. But revisionism comes from realism. Sure, but so the idea of a revisionist power is about upending the status quo in a realist framework. Uh no 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 it's it's more complicated, I think, is that there are lots of different logics that are at work. Uh, in an international system. And for everything to just be reduced to one theory, a real system, that is true that re- the notion of revisionism arises out of power transition theory, which is a realist approach. Right, to inter- that, that's all I meant. Right, okay. But uh, realism, which is just one school of international relations right. theory, isn't the only one. I think there's a good argument that uh, Charlie Carpenter, a scholar at the University of Massachusetts Amherst makes, which is that Westeros operates according to a series of subtle rules and norms, Right. Things like you can't let people into your home and feed them and then kill them, which get violated, but the fact they're violated in such a surprising fashion illustrates the normal power of those rules. And that comes from an IR school called constructivism, which highlights the importance of moral ideas, ideological beliefs to the functioning of the international system. Right. I will say also, <laughs> we're going to get into super iron nerd arguments now, but constructivism isn't actually like a, cor- it's kind of a correction to realism rather than like an, a competing ideology. It's more like, yes, States want to survive, uh, and they and they operate pursuing their own self interest. But that there are other kind of lower level issues like norms, like behaviors that that are part of it. I I, um, I don't agree with that accounting. So <laughs> I'm I'm going to roll us back from <laughs> super nerddom only to to mild nerddom. We uh, in the in the Vox offices have had raging debates about Game of Thrones all season. Which parts are good? Which parts suck? And one place where I think most people agree, and in the Dreesen household, even my dog agrees with this, that Jon Snow, good-looking as a, a man as he may be, charismatic as he may be, is a terrible, terrible leader. Pretty much everything he's done, beginning with last season where he was about to fight Ramsey Bolton, has been massively poorly thought out strategically. He was outthought last season by a person who enjoys feeding his half-brother to dogs. This season, inexplicably, he decided it'd be a good idea to himself go try to capture a zombie and bring it back. He similarly thought that if you show a zombie to Cersei, one of the most cynical rulers in the entire land, miraculously, she'll be be less cynical. And then in that moment, he decided that if when she says, surrender to me or be neutral more accurately, I'll help you. He decided that that would be a moment for sheer honesty where even his allies say, that was pretty fucking stupid. 
And when we were debating kind of, and I say debating because it's really fun, who's the best, who's the worst, there was near unanimity, as Zach was saying, on who's the worst, and there was near unanimity on who was the best. And that was seriously Lannister. Because we talked about where Daenerys was at the beginning of the season, seriously was the opposite. Right. She was surrounded on all sides. She had an enemy who had a more legitimate claim to the throne, who had, as you say, dragons, who had so basically an air force, who had a navy, who had bigger armies that were more capable of fighting. She had the brother she was sleeping with. She had a, a zombie bodyguard and not a whole lot else. And she outplayed everybody. And so by the end of the season, she has a navy because she's promised potentially to marry Euron Greyjoy and by virtue of doing that, get a navy. She has money because she's persuaded a bank to lend her enough money to hire a mercenary army. International political economy, woo! So he had a mercenary army. One of Daenerys' dragons is dead, so part of the Air Force has been grounded. So at the end of the season, a woman who had, coming into it, the weakest possible claim now has extraordinarily nuanced views of how to how to use power and how to gain power. You know, Zach, in your point, uh, in your piece, excuse me, you quote Clausewitz and talk about the very famous quote about war being a continuation of politics by other means. With other means. That's actually a subtle but important. Mm-hmm. Sorry, with other quote. means. Yeah. And, and seriously, whether those other means are uh, money from a bank or sleeping with a brother, really did a good job of figuring out how to maximize a really poor position such that you could argue, if you set aside all morality, that in terms of brilliance and who should actually run a country because she knows how to run things, it's her. Yeah, it's weird because this, I mean, she'd be a disastrous ruler for a lot of reasons. She doesn't really make long-term plans and often uh, backstabs people in ways that are deeply counterproductive. And, and literally true. Yeah. And I agree with everything else that Yohi said, but I do want to push back against this slander of Jon Snow, who I think was wildly effective this season because he had one, <sighs> one objective, right? One main objective, which is to highlight the White Walker threat and to build a coalition to fight the White Walkers. In that sense, I think the White Walkers are best understood as something like climate change. They were a threat that humans were ignoring in the face of uh, basically some petty, stupid internal squabbling over who had the most stuff internally, but the threat that was most likely to wipe out literally all life on Westeros. John was the only person at the beginning of the season, the only faction, I should say, that was willing to devote all their resources to fighting it. He was like, I don't know, Al Gore, if Al Gore managed to run a country successfully for Which once. he did not. No, he, he failed with that one. So so I love the the concept of of the White Walkers as as a kind of analogy for climate change in a lot of ways. I think that explains a lot of, of behavior, the, the broader collective action problem, right? Like, you know, collectively, it's in everyone's interest to fight the White Walkers and the Army of the Dead, but individually, it makes more sense for them to ignore it, you know, right now and fight each other so that they can stay in power. Um, however, I, I want to point out that I actually think that Jon Snow, Danny, and everyone else fighting the White Walkers are the dumbest people possible. Because as we saw in the finale, if you kill one of the actual White Walkers, all of the ones, the dead, that they have turned immediately fall down and are completely useless and rendered inert. And there only seem to be, like, at the, what, maximum, like, 15 of the White Walkers? There are not a lot of them. Right. Which means that they are massing massive armies in what is essentially a problem that could be killed with a few decapitation strikes. Hang on, like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay, but, and there, this, this, by the way, for the first time, is the voice of our producer, Peter Leonard. Hey. <laughs> Who's a big Game of Thrones fan and appears to have some takes. Well, I think it's safe for us to assume that Craster, before he died, had many children with his children, and so therefore supplied the White Walkers with quite a few babies. Which, side note, I think it's hilarious that we don't see any White Walker teenagers running around. We did see a couple new Walkers 
in the penultimate episode, namely that white bearded dude who handed the Night King the javelin. But I, I just think that they know that this is a potential problem of theirs. Right. But the problem is that, like, they, as they pointed out in the season finale, if you kill that one guy, you kill all of them. Like, that's the thing they said. Like, the one who created all of them, that's what they say. They're like, him. That's Barrick's theory. Right. right. But it might be worth testing that out. Like, maybe we could just send a small party. Like, clearly the White Walkers can be distracted by a fire pit, right? Like, they were all like, oh, what's this fire pit? And, like, the guys, you know, the John and his little Mary band of men all jumped on him. So it's not like they're like brilliant strategists. Like they were distracted by fire for like a couple minutes. So I think before trying to mass the entire combined armies of Westeros plus, you know, mercenaries, it might be worth trying a couple dozen decapitation strikes and sending some small kind of, you know, the the equivalent of the of a Navy SEAL um, in and trying to do that than maybe trying to kill the entire massive army. You know, it's interesting that fundamentally we are, of course, talking about a show in which people riding dragons breathe fire on zombies. But part of what makes this a show that we at Vox have enjoyed writing about so much, I mean, Zach's piece was great. Matt Iglesias, our colleague, has written some really good stuff. Andrew Prokop, another colleague of ours, has written some really good stuff. Is that fundamentally this is a show about power alliances, about how do you gain power, how do you use power, once you've used it, what are the repercussions? And it is a legitimately interesting thing. that When you strip away kind of fantasy elements of it, you are left with, you know, Zach, you explore this in your piece, but you're left with different competing schools of how do you do that? Of how do you gain power? How do you use power? How do you lose power? And I find that so fascinating. And I think more than anything else, that's why the show has kind of resonated as much as it has. There are a couple of pieces written after the finale that made what I thought was an equally good point in a sort of depressing way, which is now that part of the show is basically over. You have six episodes left. You've got this cataclysmic war coming. And so this, these questions that have led us to this point about who's been the smartest, who's used power most effectively, that's going to be diminishing, which I'm glad you did the piece now and not next season, in favor of the full-on special effect using budget-busting, dragons-breathing fire on zombies, which will be, of course, cool as hell. I mean, I hope not. And the reason why is they need to resolve the Cersei plotline, right. right? Like she's still, I mean, we learned in the finale, sorry for those of you who haven't watched her yet, but we have to talk about this, that her commitment to aid them was a sham and she actually is going to try to take the territory Daenerys has seized back while she's busy fighting because the White Walkers. Because fucking, of course she is. Right. Because fucking Cersei, of course she is. So there's going to be a real question about whether that kind of... Uh, lying, trickery, and power hungriness is the best way to actually wield and obtain power that's going to be explored in the next season. My guess is it doesn't pan out well, just much as it doesn't pan out well this season for Littlefinger, who really did not understand the nature of the international system in Westeros, specifically the ways in which rules about commitments to family caused people to align with their own families against him. He just basically didn't understand Stark loyalty, and that got him killed. I think it, it's also interesting um, that this is something that will play out that we will never see because it's not sexy and it's way long in the future. But if we kind of accept that that Westeros is kind of supposed to be loosely based on like the UK, like British, English, yeah, the, well, medieval. The original idea came from the War of the Roses. Right. And like the actual like territory roughly outlines like Britain, Scotland, Wales, that area. Like if you look at the actual maps. Um, but what I think is interesting is you know, all of this kind of squabbling, like you said, the War of the Roses, like this internal squabbling is essentially in one country that's that's really dominant in their area. But they don't seem to be like a super expansive, like imperialist power. Like they're not taking over any of the other like 
places. So what I think is interesting is, you know, if we're talking about like realism and power transition theory, that like when one of the Eastern kingdoms like rises, like China, to challenge all of Westeros, like what happens then? Because all of their internal squabbling has essentially weakened them when they could have come together and created a potential, you know, alliance and been a a global superpower, but they're not because their internal squabbling has made them kind of sad and lonely and on fire. Well, we're kind of seeing that, right? Because Daenerys took over a bunch of places in Essos and managed to recruit the entire Dothraki horde right. uh, to be her army, right. right? And that and the Dothraki invade Westeros for the first time and kick everyone's asses because they're vastly superior cavalrymen, basically, right? And that's, Jamie admits as much that our knights right. just can't deal with the Mongol equivalent, which is what they're based on. I think we will give the last word to the rarely speaking, but brilliant and just back from Australia, Peter Leonard, let your hot take fly. I was just going to say, this is by no means a hot take, but I was going to say <laughs> in, in response to- We'll be the to, judge of that, Peter. We'll, we'll be the judge. I think that Cersei really screwed the pooch by letting Jamie go. She should have killed him. Red lines, red lines. She has no credibility. She laid out a red line that you nobody turns your back on me, and then she let him literally turn his back and walk away. Yeah, Agreed. And also, Jamie knows that this is a sham, and he is riding north, presumably to tell them- Let's not forget that the Northern powers now have in Bran essentially a global surveillance device. Right. Oh, my God. oh my God. That is a yeah. massive, massive force multiplier. Yeah. Right? Like, that's huge. You like, have perfect intelligence now. Yeah. If you want to use it properly. Yeah. So, I mean, unless he's like being surly, it doesn't feel like telling you because he's being weird that day. They make America's spy satellites, Bran does, make America's spy satellites look like jokes. Yeah. And also, can we just say that Samuel Tarley's reaction to Bran saying that he is a three eyed raven is quite possibly the single funniest <laughs> thing where he goes, oh, I don't know what that means. That's literally me. Like if you're trying to explain like, I don't know, IT stuff like computers and, you know, I don't, a global satellite system. And it's like, oh, that's that's nice. What, what does that mean? It's like watching uh, The Defenders, for those of you who watch that, and hearing Danny Rand say, I am the immortal Iron Fist and every other character rolling their eyes at him. Right, exactly. I feel like Bran is like the most single, most annoying character possible on that show. I get that he's important or whatever because he's the three-eyed raven. (laughs) But he's like a surly annoying teenager who like just read Kafka and like Ayn Rand and thinks he like understands everything now and he's like guys, I actually know how to fix everything. Just listen to me. With that, we will wrap. (laughs) If you have not read enough about Game of Thrones or listened to enough about Game of Thrones, the website we work for, Vox.com, is full of them. Zach's pieces up. We've had pieces all season that are worth reading. Matt Iglesias has done pieces on military strategy and about the wall. Andrew Prokop has done pieces about dragons. All of them are worth reading. They're a fun break from the depressing reality in which we live. And the Culture Pod, Caroline Framke and, and Todd Vanderwerf. As always, if you like what you've heard, we hope you do. Please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, on Google Play. We are in many places. We hope you will come find us in those places. We hope you'll listen. We hope you will share what you find with those you like. As always, you can email us at worldlyfox.com. We will respond to every email. We take them very seriously. As always, also, thank you to Peter Leonard for this time speaking as well as producing. And we will be with you all next week. Bye. Valor Morghulis. Valor Doheris. <laughs>